Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 20. We're going to study verses 1 through 17. 1 Samuel chapter 20. I want to remind you that where we are is in the section of 1 Samuel that gives the account of the many deliverances of David from the hands of Saul. We've already seen David dodge some more spears thrown by the hand of King Saul. We have seen David uh, be warned and even been able to run for his life because of his wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul from the hands of Saul. We've also seen the Lord deliver David by sending the spirit of prophecy upon men who would hurt David and even on King Saul. And so here as we come to this passage of scripture, we have David fleeing then to Jonathan, the son of Saul, his dear friend. And there is this conversation that happens between the men. And that's what we're going to give our attention to this evening. Jonathan's covenanting and, his, and David's request for warning. And so let us read the word of God and study it together. Then David fled from Nioth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold... If he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, 
the Lord do so to Jonathan and more if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that, it, that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. The word of the Lord our God. May he instruct us and build us up through its truth. Let's pray again. Fathers, we come and study the ancient history of your people. I pray that you would confront us and convict us. Lord, show us where we have been lacking. Lord, show us our own skepticism of the things which you call us to. Lord, form us into the men and the women that you intend us to be in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us stand to honor and glorify you and to proclaim your anointed and his glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends are a gift from God. Real Christian friendship. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not just speaking about mild acquaintances. And admittedly, I need to say to you that I come from a culture that overuses the word friend. Sometimes we simply and at a very basic and bare level, we'll call somebody a friend that we've just met so long as they have not immediately offended us. And that's a weakness of Southern culture. That's a weakness of my people. But we as Christians are called to so much more. Real, true friendship, Christian, spiritual friendship. It's a gift of God that he gives to his people. So much so is it a gift that the language of love is right and appropriate when speaking of it. Too often, I think, in our day and age, we speak of love. We only have one, seemingly one, basic use that we would give to a person that's not in our family, and that is erotic love, the love of attraction. But that's not at all what we're talking about. We're talking about the love of friends, brotherly, sisterly love in the Lord. And here in this passage of Scripture, we have an incredible historic account of the loving, gracious providence of God to David and Jonathan in the friendship that they had for one another. You see, sometimes God gives us friends for a variety of things, but always it is for our good. That friendship may show itself in good times where we're enjoying wonderful celebrations like the birth of a child or a wedding or success professionally. But real Christian friendship is so good that it is also present and maybe even more felt in hard times or in times where we need to be sanctified And the Lord intends it for our good that he might keep us in the grip of his grace. And so again, this evening we're going to study one of the most profound friendships recorded in the scriptures. 
that wonderful friendship of David and Jonathan, the friendship between a prince of Israel and his coming king. Three things I want us to see, firstly, in verses 1 through 8, is the spiritual accountability of friendship. The spiritual accountability of friendship, verses 9 through 16, the protective responsibility of friendship. The protective responsibility of friendship. And then in verse 17, the loving foundation of friendship. The loving foundation of friendship. And so let's look at the first of these. The spiritual accountability of friendship, verses 1 through 8. The statement that I'm about to make, I want you to hold on to. And we're going to revisit in just a second. And this is the statement. The isolated person who has no friends is the most dangerous person in the world to themselves and to others. Let me repeat that to you. The isolated person who has no friends is the most dangerous person in the world to themselves and to others. Now hang on to that because at the close of this point we're going to come right back to it. As we come to verse 1, we find David and he's running. He's not running to Samuel. In fact, he's running to a friend. We read that he fled from Nioth in Ramah. That's where he's been with Samuel and the troop of prophets. This is the site where Saul and his officers fell to the ground in the spirit of prophecy, naked, and were overwhelmed by the Lord. And so the Lord made his enemies to be his mouthpieces. But here he's running. That's what the whole picture is. It's David in crisis. Is he running again from Saul? It doesn't seem to be. He's running out of the question of conviction. And where is he running? He's running to his friend Jonathan. And the first thing that is on his lips, well, it's a question. You can see it in verse 1. He says, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And as we come to this, you may think and maybe pass over it really quickly. And you think this is an insincere question. Maybe this is a a rhetorical question that Jonathan isn't intended to answer, but just feel the weight of it. The innocence of his friend. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I think this is entirely sincere. I think David, after having been pursued and the various attempts at his life have been made, is simply asking the question, is the problem with me? Saul has failed not once, not twice, but three times. And Well, the humble man is going to simply ask the question, knowing his own soul, knowing that he's a sinner, it must be me. And David has searched himself. He's asked the question, does this derive from the preaching of Samuel and the prophets? We don't know, but we know it grips David's heart. That's the first thing he says to Jonathan. Show me my sin. Hold me accountable. That's the first thing he presses. And I just want to say this, and I want you to view this and to own it, that it is usually true friends who see what we cannot about ourselves 
and true friends who can say things to us that we will not bear from an enemy. Did you know that our enemies often tell us true things about ourselves? They really do. People that don't like you, they may not be fair, they may not be kind, they may be intending to hurt you, but sometimes, if not often, they tell us our deficiencies. They reveal to us our inward attitudes, our our hard spirits, all sorts of things, but it's friends from whom we can hear these things and from whom we'll receive them. Now you may hear that and you say, I don't know, I don't have friends like that. I don't have too many friends where I would go and I'd literally hold my heart out to them and say, crush me. But that's what David is doing. And it is because he has a true friend. And his friend is in the Lord. It's not just any guy, any man. Yes, this is a prince of Israel, but this is his friend. He doesn't ask him from his office. He asks him on the grounds of their heart for one another. Because he knows he can trust him. He knows his heart is for David, not against David. And so he asks him three times, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Well, Jonathan's response, far from it. The thing that he hears most loudly is this, your dad wants to kill me. And Jonathan's response could be interpreted on this sort of term. Jonathan cannot imagine the guilt or the sin of David, far from it, there's no Sin for which my father would pursue you. But it seems rather that Jonathan only hears the end of the sentence and not everything that came before it. That Jonathan is not aware that his father would pursue him. That Jonathan is not aware that his father, who has already said that he won't lay a hand upon David, is now then pursuing David again. Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, verse 2, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. Jonathan says it can't be. I haven't heard of it. He keeps nothing from me. David, are you sure? Are you sure this is from my father? Are you sure that this happened or are you just a little bit paranoid? And in verse 3, David does what? He vows. He swears by the Lord that what he's saying is true. He says, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. He's saying, Come on, Jonathan. Don't you know that your father knows how much we care for one another? How much we are friends? How sincere and how close we are? Don't you know? And don't you know your father would hold this back? Fearing for your best? Fearing for your interference? Don't you know? That's what David's concern is. That Saul is concealing this from Jonathan. Keeping it from Jonathan. And so then David continues... It's not only that, but he tells him the truth and he tells him sincerely and straightforwardly. But truly, this is his vow, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Jonathan, I barely escaped. The spears were so close 
They trimmed my hair. Jonathan, I'm so close to death that if I even stumble for a second, he's got me. I'm done. I'm sure of it. Listen to me, friend. Listen to me. As if he's grabbing him by the shoulders and saying, I'm only telling you the truth. And yes, it's a desperate David. Yes, he's asking, he's searching. Is it with me? Is it something that I've done? Have I deserved this? Show me my sin. But Jonathan, you need to know that this is reality. This is what is happening. And I need the help of a friend. In verse 4, you go on and we read that Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, that I, whatever you say I will do for you. And then David's response is to ask him to go and to try to discern the heart of his father. And we have this unique scenario painted. It's a situation. It's a seasonal sacrifice that happens in uh, David's home city, uh, Bethlehem. And, and it's also the situation where David is supposed to report to the court of Saul. He comes for dinner. He sits at his table. He gives a report concerning all of the men that Saul has put under his authority and it's a common thing and to be away from that table is a dangerous thing this is the king's court why would you not be there unless you are unhappy with the king and if you are unhappy with the king are you then conspiring against the king you see there's danger and David is telling Jonathan friend go tell your father I can't come I'm out of town I'm worshiping the Lord in Bethlehem something I've got to do And you go, Jonathan, and you look over your father and you see how he responds. And if he is fine and happy and says it's all right, then then it means just no, no big deal. But Jonathan, you look at him, you judge him, and you see if he's angry. And if you do, then you need to be absolutely certain that he is intended and determined to do me harm. Verse 7. That's significant. I want you to search me out, but search out your father. That's the context. And then we return again to the spiritual accountability of friendship. In verse 8, David once again comes to the role of a friend. He says, Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. That's how close their friendship is. It's not just David. It's not just Jonathan. There's a third party and it's the Lord. He invokes that covenant. And this is what he requests in light of it. He says to his friend, but if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? Verse 8. We're right back in verse 1. Jonathan, show me my sin. Show me the things I can't see, the things I'm unwilling to bear. Show me those things, Jonathan. If you find it, if you're with your father, if you hear the things that I've done, your father expresses it and confides in you the things that I've done, you take my life. If you're really my friend and I really deserve death, I'd rather die by the blows of a friend than the blows of an enemy. You be the one that takes my life. Why even take me to your father? You be the good man that upholds justice and does what is right by me. All that is extreme. That's a level of accountability that I don't know many of us really understand. And why can David go here? Why is he convinced and committed to this? 
It's because he knows the theology of Proverbs 27.6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Have you got friends that you could take and pluck your guilty heart out of your chest and put it in their hands and feel as if you're safe and secure? Have you got those? Have you invested yourself spiritually, pursuing a relationship, a friendship with a man, with a woman in the church, under the Lord, spiritually? So that it's not just simply that your acquaintances are simply not offended by each other, but you know each other deeply to the point where you can just say, all right, if I've done wrong, you cut me. If you got that, if you don't have that, I want to plead with you, Christians. Plead with you. Find that friend. Be that friend. Draw another person, another Christian into that relationship with you. Let me say, very simply, I'm not talking about your spouse. Spouses will not cut with any accuracy as a friend will. A friend, a friend with whom you're covenanted before the Lord for one another's holiness. I thank God that I can stand before you and say, I have friends like that. I have friends that even recently I said, brother, cut me. And I want to plead with you. Because remember what I said at the beginning of this point. Who is the most dangerous person in the world? It is the person with no friends. They are dangerous to themselves and others. Test this. Who is the most dangerous person to themselves but the one who will lie to themselves continually about their own sins? And they'll go into it more and more and more. And they isolate themselves. They push themselves all the way back in the corner. And everybody as far away as possible. Don't get near me. You may see something you don't like. It's dangerous. It's dangerous for you. It's dangerous before the Lord. Inevitably, what does a person who takes their own life first do? They get rid of everybody else around them. Everybody's been pushed away. I haven't heard from him. Two, three months. I haven't heard from him in two, three years. She hasn't returned a phone call. I'm worried about them. Always the case. Dangerous also to other people. I can't listen to the radio. I can't go online. I can't consume any media without daily hearing about this or that other shooting. And inevitably, inevitably, this person has been... Yes, living around people, but as far away from them as possible. They've been writing in a journal for six months, eight months about their own isolation. They want nobody to know, and then they carry out a horrendous act. They don't want their hand stopped. The maniacal warlord who has an arsenal of nuclear weapons, generals say, is the most dangerous because... He is the most isolated. Because no one is willing to say, no, you should not do that. You should not do that. And so I plead with you, Christian. I plead with you to find the spiritual accountability of true and Christian friendship. Facilitate it. Pursue it. 
push the issue, make it an issue with another person in the church, a brother or sister in Christ, and do not give up until the Lord pours it out in your life and gives it to you. That's what David has here. And it saves him. It saves him from the hand of harm and even his own hand. Verses 9 through 16, we come to the protective responsibility of friendship. And in a lot of ways, this is Jonathan's response to what David has said. Verses 9 through 12, Jonathan agrees to do what the ESV calls sound out. He's going to go sound out his father and then report. And I, I came to that and I was reading and studying and I went to the Hebrew. I'm like, why, why would we have this translated in this way, sounding out. I had to learn something. When you sound something, you test for its depth. It's a cave, it's a hole in the ground, maybe it's the ocean. You sound it out, you send a probe down to explore, you check it out to see how deep the issue goes, and that's the turn of phrase. And it's really here derived from the original language. Jonathan says, when I sound my father out, when I search out his intention, he promises that he will go and tell David what he finds. Why? Well, because he's his friend. And he covenants with David. In verse 11, uh, we see uh, this interesting phrase that we uh, have on the lips of Jonathan. He says to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. What is going on there? Do they just want privacy? I don't think so. This doesn't spell it out greatly, but it does give us the context of covenanting. Well, there are things that you do with covenanting. We read about covenanting in the Bible, and covenants are cut, is what the Bible says. It doesn't mean you cut your hand and it's a blood oath or anything like you would see in Hollywood or read about in books. No, the the blood of covenanting is usually a symbol of the curse that comes on to a person if they don't keep it. And so when you have God covenanting with Abraham, he's cutting animals in two and putting one on one piece on one side and another piece on another side, and then symbolically they pass through them. And it seems that they're going out in the field to enact this covenant, this promise. It's not just Jonathan swearing to David, but this is Jonathan and David entering in contract before God. So contextually, it makes perfect sense that this is what Jonathan means. And here is the substance of what gets sworn in the covenant. Verse 12, Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness that when I have done this, when I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, so he doesn't know when he can carry it out, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, it's very formal the way he's saying this, towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, speaking of himself. More also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. He's pulling a curse on himself. You see what he's saying? I don't do this, the Lord curse me. Let the Lord do this to me. And even more. 
He goes on, and in verse 14, he expands on it even more. And so I just want to, again, point to the reality that the relationship of friendship, it's not intended to be a light thing. This is legal, and it's binding, and it is a thing that they take before the Lord. These are vows and covenanting that if Jonathan doesn't keep, it's going to be sin and what else? It's going to be action from God. Let the Lord do even more to me. Let the Lord curse me. Let him rain down that and even more if I don't tell David. Why does he do this? Is it for the Lord's benefit? Well, it is holy. David was given to him as a friend. It's a good thing, a right thing to keep. But this is the keeping of David's heart. He didn't have to covenant. This is so David is certain. He's certain. He's not even bothered, overwhelmed. Will Jonathan continue as a true friend? But rather now, he has a contract before heaven that Jonathan's going to do what he's requested. You see, Jonathan does this. Why? Because he's his friend and because he cares about David. He wants to protect his heart and his body, the whole of his person, from harm. Verses 13 through 17, we have Jonathan beginning to discern the ascendance of David. What do I mean by that? Jonathan is sensitive to God's hand of providence. I don't think the Bible does not record that Jonathan has been told anything about David's having been anointed by Samuel. Anything. I think it would record that. I believe that what Jonathan is doing is he's looking over the shoulder of David at the providence of God that's happening in real time. And Jonathan is saying, well, David, you're impressive. You're a magnificent warrior. But I cannot imagine that you would escape harm time and time and time and time and time and time again if God did not have his hand upon you. And he's looking at the providence of God and he's interpreting it. And he says, simply in his own self, in his own mind, there's got to be something else to this. The Lord must have a part in this. He's discerning providence. I want to warn you, church. Discerning and interpreting providence in real time is absolutely dangerous. And I'm sure you've done it before. You're probably like me. Things happen. Um, and you think, well, this is why God did it, right? Whether it's a hurricane that takes your house, whether it's the loss of a job, uh, you might be uh, inclined to say, well, God's taken out his vengeance on those people. They're a whole bunch of sinful, horrible wretches. And while that's true, every man, woman, and child has fallen, you still cannot imagine the full weight of God's providence. Did God also intend that to be a season where the church builds up and the church evangelizes and the church is a mercy and the church pours out and Christ is known and a revival is had? It could be. And so it's dangerous to interpret providence in the moment. Or you might say, God, let me lose that job because I'm a terrible person and I need to repent. And that might be part of it, absolutely part of it. God may take a thing from you for the chastening of your soul so that you hit your knees in reliance upon him. God also may be snatching you as a precious commodity from your employer who does not deserve you to give you better 
and to minister to you the peace, the capacity that you need in the moment and in the season, and you just can't see it. It is dangerous. It is dangerous to interpret God's providence in the moment. It's almost always proper to look back on God's providence, to look and to search out what the Lord has done in your life. Why? So you can praise him for what he's done. Always appropriate for the Christian to search out the acts of God's hand in the unfolding of the history of your life. But let me say that why I think Jonathan is doing this and doing it well is because he is spiritually seeking who David is. He's not exactly just looking at himself, but asking with some sincerity and searching out God's purposes. But look here, look at verse 13. You can begin to see this. Jonathan may say this by chance or accident. I don't believe so. There is no chance that there is chance. But look, verse 13. But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety, the protection of David. But read the second last part. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Jonathan's father is not just any person. And his interaction with the Lord is not casual. It is specific and particular. Saul is God's anointed, his chosen king. Second to almost nobody in the kingdom. Equal with the high priest. This is a significant statement. Jonathan says, David, let the hand of the Lord rest upon you with kingly protection and weight. That's significant. Jonathan wouldn't just say that to anybody. And would a prince say to a coming king who will replace him and his household? Cut off his dynasty? The Lord bless you. As a king ought to be blessed. Will he say it? Well, he has said it. Because he discerns the hand of God. Verses 14 through 16, you have this again. Let's read this together because, again, he's discerning the providences of God. Jonathan, speaking of himself, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Who's he talking to? He's talking to David. He's saying, if I survive the Lord's vengeance against your enemies, David, the Lord's going to kill your enemies. If I survive that because I'm in the household of Saul, I am your obvious competition. He says to David, do not cut off your steadfast love, your covenant love from my house forever. David, I don't want to lose you. The Lord doesn't kill me as you're next in line to be your enemy. David, don't make me your enemy. I'm not your enemy, David. And he falls back in this friendship on the grace of God and the love of David, his friend. It's significant what he says. 
So much so that we read in verse 16 that Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. He makes David swear something now. It's not just Jonathan covenanting, but David. And this is what he makes him swear. David, you say this. May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Um, Excuse me, have I lost my place? Yes, I'm sorry, verse 17. He makes Jonathan, Jonathan makes David swear. Again, by what? By his love for him. You see, this interaction is significant. Jonathan's not only concerned to protect David's soul, his mind, his body, but also his affection to him as a friend. And so I want to say that friendship requires real, significant, costly covenanting and effort if you want to be a friend and to keep a friend it's going to cost you it's going to mean you're going to have to step into the gap you're going to have to defend your friend from the darts the anger of enemies but also you are going to have to again and again and again protect you and your friend your friendship from the harm that can be done by suspicious hearts you're going to have to keep working on it sometimes in the covenant of marriage counselors and ministers have often say don't stop dating your wife you keep working on it i'm not telling you to date your friends but keep working on that friendship Put effort in, protect it, build up walls around it so that it's strong and so that your commitments to one another can withstand. In verse 17, this is the closing, but we see the loving foundation of friendship. And this is one of the most, I would say, intimate verses in all the Old Testament. And we see this repeated a number of times between David and Jonathan. Look at verse 17. Uh, the substance of the vow that Jonathan requested of David. Swear again. He made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. The language of love is appropriate to describe real, Christian, wonderful, deep, meaningful Friendship, And for so many people today, the language of love, when applied to friendship, is uncomfortable. People don't say that kind of thing. Occasionally you'll have a phone call with a friend. Occasionally you'll hang up with, yes, I love you, talk to you soon. But the reality and the depth of love, the sincerity of love and the strength and the passion of love, that's what's being pictured here. It's not just some casual love but we're told that it is so deep that we could say that he loved him as he loved his own soul it's a soul level a thing that's intangible and invisible viewed only by God and the author of scripture tells us that's the depth that's if you were to sound the depth of Jonathan and David's love for one another that's how deep it is and people say well What are we talking about here? This sounds really weird. This sounds like the same kind of love you'd have between a husband and a wife. 
This is even in a different fashion, in a different capacity than a father to a son or a mother to a daughter. This is, this is strange. It's, it's too intimate. And I just want to say to you, this is not erotic love. No matter what modern commentator tries to make it so. The Bible again and again curses and anathematizes homosexual, same-sex, erotic love. That is not what is going on here. This is just a picture of the depth of true spiritual friendship. This is what God intends for you as a man or a woman in Christ with other Christians. Deep, abiding, wonderful, magnificent, committed, costly, accountable, spiritual love... The same sort of fellowship that we have pictured for us between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The sort of love that would compel Christ to get on his knees and to hold the filthy feet of his disciples and bathe them clean with his hands, taking their soil onto his own garments. This is significant. This is deep love. This is wonderful love that is the foundation of friendship. Without this... Whatever you have that you're calling friendship, it is something less. And so what am I saying to you this evening, my friends in Christ? Give yourself to love your friends. Really. Invest in it. Work at it. Love takes work. Real love will insist upon itself Even when the other person is not lovely. If that weren't the case, no wife would ever stay married to her husband, nor husband to her wife. The same is true in the bond of friendship. Christ holds out this wonderful model of the one who, while we were yet sinners, died for us. The righteous who died for his friends. No greater love has anyone than this than he that dies for his friends. Love. That's the foundation of friendship. Don't let the world instruct you on how deep your friendship should go. Let the word of God. And invest and invest deeply so that the Lord is glorified. You are kept. And the Lord blesses you in every season, good and bad with what it is to have real, true friendship. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we love you. Lord, we are so thankful for your word that confronts us in the worst parts of our nature. Lord, we don't want to be good friends because we're sinners. We want to be selfish people, private people, who don't give ourselves in any depth to one another. Lord, confront us where we fail. Lord, give us repentance where we don't invest in this, especially among your people. And Lord, I pray that you would build up our church in this, that you would improve us, O Lord, that where we have done wrong, where we have not minded this and kept this and built up friendship and bonds of love between us, that we would do so. O Lord, that we might mirror Christ. O Lord, that we would love one another and give ourselves for one another. Our Father in heaven, we pray and plead with you for this. 
we know that friendship is a gift from you. That holy friendship cannot come from anybody else. Oh Lord, would you build our church up in that, every one of us, through the grace of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.